But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And God said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in, in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to the... <laughs> Claudius Lysias, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was 
when it was and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipetrus. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. May God bless the reading of his word. Minister Taylor will now preach to us on the topic from Jerusalem to Rome. Minister Taylor, please come. Good morning, Crossbridge, and thank you, Wynne, for reading the long passage for us this morning. Uh, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word that indeed is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of bone and marrow of soul and spirit. We pray that your word would penetrate our hearts today. Uh, and that your word would be spoken as I preach. Uh, so may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue on our, our sermon series on Acts uh, to the ends of the earth, we come to this passage uh, in, in Acts 22. Uh, my main idea throughout the sermon is to communicate that God is sovereign over all things and in his infinite wisdom providentially preserves Paul in the midst of persecution so that Paul may accomplish what God has called him to do. Uh, throughout the sermon, I will use the words like sovereignty and providence, uh, referring to God in an interchangeable way. Uh, in the second half, I will talk a little bit about how I think that plays itself out in this passage and in our experience as well. Uh, so a little bit of a uh, trickier passage, so to speak. Um, but yeah, have, uh, have grace with me. <laughs> um, before getting to Paul, I want us to consider sightings of God's sovereignty in our own lives. What are some ways, maybe something that was small that happened that may have changed a trajectory in your life, or something small, seemingly small, that ended up amounting to something very big? I can reflect about this question and think in my own life, when I was a young boy, I watched kung fu movies with, you know, Bruce Lee uh, and Jet Li and all those guys. And, and I honestly think if I was not into those movies as a young boy, I may not be standing before you today. True story. So a little bit of context, my, my sister in, in Ohio was involved in a prosperity gospel church. Uh, and so I did not grow up going to church, and in fact, my family had a very negative uh, view of church because of my sister's experience as a youth uh, who is seven years older than me. Uh, but as a young boy, I, I watched these kung fu movies, and so I got interested in training myself. And I started doing martial arts, and like five years later, I met a girl that went to the Chinese church that invited me to come along. And so going after the girl, I, I, I went along. Uh, but throughout time, the, war, the, the Lord worked on my heart. I heard the gospel. I was discipled, called into ministry, and so on and so forth from that small thing. I probably never would have stepped into the church had it been a, a white church because of my sister's negative, negative experience with the Prosperity Gospel Church. So that's God's providence in one small way. Now, I could reflect on that and say, is that all just a coincidence? Now, ultimately, I do not have the Holy Spirit telling me 
hey, this was something that I providentially did in your life to set you on this trajectory, to put you in this place today, and so on and so forth. Uh, Ultimately, I don't know for sure, but I think as we look through Scripture and as we think through the sightings of God's sovereignty, the sightings of the providence of God, I can say with confidence that I do believe that it was the the, the, the Lord working all things according to the counsel of his will to set this sort of thing in motion. As we see and look at Paul, we see something similar happening today. God providentially provides, preserves Paul's life in the midst of this persecution. Now, it's important to think about a little bit of context and where we're at. So we just read this long passage where Paul is is standing basically before trial, before the Romans. Uh, But throughout his missionary journeys, he's now on his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, This is important for a few reasons. The the Christians in Jerusalem were facing uh, a famine. And so Paul was going around uh, through the different Gentile churches that he was going and preaching the gospel. He was taking up a love offering that he would be able to come back and bring to the Christians who are impoverished and suffering in Jerusalem. Uh, In addition, Paul felt very called by the Lord to go back to Jerusalem to tell the Jewish Christians about what the Lord was doing amongst the Gentiles uh, throughout the the different places and he's going through his missionary journeys. It's been roughly eight years since Paul has gone back to Jerusalem, but he's going back. Not only is he going back, he's going back against the urgings of his friends. You can see the passage behind me, this, this prophecy uh, from his friend, the, the prophet Agabus, that if you go, you are going to be bound. And his friends were pleading with him, don't go. But Paul has, again, the, 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 this passage that uh, Pastor Jeff preached on, I think, last week uh, about sharing the testimony that Paul says, I am ready to go, not only if it means being in prison, but even if it means death. So here in, our, in the first section in verses 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 30 through 23, 11, and I invite you to open up your Bibles, we, we see Paul addressing his accusers. In this section, the, uh, Paul's interrogation continues as the Romans officials seek to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. Paul's basically placed on trial falsely of this false uh, accusation that he is teaching the people to disobey the law. This is the accusation that the, the Jews brought before the, the Roman authorities and, and brought against Paul. Uh, and in 23 verse 1, Paul basically defends himself by saying that he has lived his life before God in all good conscience up until this day. We can think about a few similarities between Paul's trial and Jesus' trial. We see that in both cases, for example, they are being charged by the Jews and that they are sitting under uh, a a Roman authority as they are on trial. Uh, But we can also see some differences between Jesus' trial and Paul's trial. Uh, Namely, Jesus stayed silent whenever he was accused, but we see this passage here where Paul actually kind of jumps out against and speaks against the hypocrisy of the high priest and calls him a whitewashed wall. Uh, of course, then he, he realizes that the high priest is the high priest and, and kind of uh, shows contentment or, or, or kind of takes it back a little bit um, because of that. Uh, he didn't realize that the, the high priest was a high priest. And we might be surprised when we come across that because we know Paul's a Pharisee uh, or from a Pharisee background. But remember, he wasn't in Jerusalem for eight years. Uh, a lot of scholars also believe that Paul had uh, eyesight problems. 
Um, you can look, think about that from a few different things. In the road to Damascus, for example, he's blinded. And though he's healed, he does continue to talk about uh, his thorn in the flesh. Uh, and in Galatians, uh, there's this little passage that says, look at how big I'm writing uh, these letters because I write them with my own hands. Uh, so we don't know for sure, but scholars look at that and say, hey, you know, maybe he doesn't have very good eyesight. Maybe he was never fully healed, even though he was healed enough to be able to see. Um, anyway, uh, the Pharisees uh, and the Sadducees continue to, to accuse him. And uh, Paul is really sly here in this verse, so, so throughout verse 6. So I'm, I'm going to read verse 6 for us uh, again. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were the Sadducees and the other the Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brother, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees, and it is respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Uh, the Pharisees, we know, were very zealous for the law, but also very corrupt. Jesus speaks out against the corruption of the Pharisees, and Paul also speaks out against their corruption, and we, we see it time and time again. But they were very, very zealous for the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were much more Hellenized, which that, what that means is that they resembled much more of the broader Roman or Greek culture. They were ethnic Jews who were in positions of political power, but their religious things, their religious beliefs were not necessarily aligned with the Old Testament, with the Torah. And so there was tensions, and one of the biggest tensions being the belief over the resurrection of the dead. And Paul knows this and uses it to his example, uh, to, to his ad, uh, advantage, rather. Uh, to borrow some Gen Z language to get the youth uh, awake a little bit, Paul finesses the situation knowing the political background. But of course, his finessing, at yeah, W, thanks, Jacob. Uh, but of course, his finessing leads to this uh, dissension between the group, and they start arguing. Uh, they start arguing, and it becomes violent, and the Romans bring Paul back before he's unalived by the uh, vicious crowd. Uh, so that's what we see in verses 9 and 10. Uh, I don't want to skip over verse 11. It's very important, but I, I do want to come back to that in a little bit. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. That's a very powerful passage, but I, I, I want to come back to that in, in just a little bit. So the first section, uh, Paul stands before the uh, council. Got my verses mixed up, or slides mixed up. Uh, and in the second section, we see that Paul, um, we see this, this vow of the Jews to kill Paul, uh, but then that he's rescued by the Romans. And so we see that in verses 12 through, through 35. So Paul is temp temporarily brought back to safety inside the barracks by the Jews uh, so that he would not be unalived. Um, but the Jews will not give up their pursuit. Luke tells us of this group who makes this vows to not eat or drink until they have killed Paul. It's important to know that this assassination attempt is not just some small coup, but it is an organized assassination attempt endorsed by the majority of the Jewish leaders. Paul is accused of uh, breaking the Mosaic law, but we should not overlook that the Jews in their religious zeal are fast to break the law in this attempt to, to murder Paul. Um, this, uh, this coup or this assassination attempt, we, we learn about Paul's nephew, 
very small passage that just says that Paul's nephew heard about this and brought it to uh, basically their, their attention. It's the only place in the whole Bible we know of anything about Paul's family. Uh, but, but Paul's nephew hears about this and basically goes to the centurion and says, hey, I have something to say. He tells Paul uh, about this uh, assassination attempt. And the Romans uh, take this concern very seriously. Uh, in verse 23, uh, at 9 p.m. at night, Paul is sent off uh, to the governor Felix in Caesarea under the protection of a very large military force, uh, according to some commentaries, about half of the military force that was in Jerusalem. Uh, so the, the Roman authorities definitely take this very seriously. You, you see they, they put their favor on Paul against his perfect, uh, protection and uh, goes forward in protecting them. So, uh, as we say, as I'm arguing, God providentially uh, preserves Paul's life. So if you think about it for a moment, this, this story, uh, it is pretty crazy. It might be something that we would see on a TV show or in a novel. Uh, or maybe it's a little bit too crazy to make up uh, to put into a novel. Um, things are just crazy. <laughs> uh, it is very, very interesting. Uh, Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, the apostle to the Gentiles. Why does he go back to Jerusalem? Why does he go back to Jerusalem when his friends are pleading with him, don't go back? Why doesn't Paul just go on to Rome and uh, continue to build up the church there and, you know, create a new epicenter or a new center for Christianity to go forth into Spain and then, you know, to the ends of the earth? Why, why does he have to go back to Jerusalem? Why would God call Paul back to Jerusalem rather than immediately on to Rome and so on and so forth to continue going on? The only thing that we can say for sure is that God's ways are higher than our ways. This passage and, you know, even in the, the coming passages to come remind me a lot of the book of Esther, where in the book of Esther, although God's name is never mentioned, we see God working in all kinds of different places. In this passage, we don't actually see something saying that God providentially orchestrated all these things to happen, but we see his hand in it all. Think about this for a minute. How differently would it have been if Paul was not a Roman citizen, having the protection and rights of a Roman citizen? Before, uh, in, in the last sermon, there was this passage where he was struck and then he, the, the authorities didn't know that he was a Roman citizen. And Paul says, hey, why are you flogging me? I'm a Roman citizen. And then they kind of take it back. And in this section here, Paul is granted protection because of his Roman status. How differently would it have happened if Paul wasn't a Pharisee in, before coming to, to Christ? How different would it have been if he didn't have the knowledge of this division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Maybe the, the Jews would have been able to create some sort of organized claim or organized some sort of something against Paul in order to justify his execution. So we can think about, you know, that division amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We can think about the Roman law that offers Paul that protection. We can even think about the things like Paul's nephew, whom, again, we know absolutely nothing about other than he heard the plans of assassination from these Jewish leaders. Maybe he was a Pharisee himself, or maybe he just simply overheard. How differently would it have been if he didn't hear that? 
uh, if Paul wasn't sent away and the assassination attempt was able to be carried out? How differently would it have played out if the favor of the Roman tribune, the centurions, and Governor Felix had not been upon Paul? Now, it is true that the Holy Spirit does not directly tell us that God is working all these things for his purposes. As here at Crossbridge, we are scripture-driven, so I have to ask myself the question, am I reading into the passage when I make this claim that God is, in fact, providentially orchestrating all these things? I think we can be sure that God is, in fact, or was, in fact, sovereignly orchestrating these events in the lives of Paul for a few reasons. I want to look to a few other passages in the book of Acts in order to, to make this case. So if we think about that, for example, if we go all the way back to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, we, we see these words. Peter's preaching to the crowd. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we have this passage very clearly that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plans and foreknowledge of God. But we also see that little hints there that human free will was also at place when he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This uh, agency, this human agency, this human free will acting out. We see a similar passage in Acts chapter 4, the greater section in verses 27 through 31, as the believers are praying and seeking uh, help from God in the midst of their difficult physical circumstances. Uh, and it says this, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So again, uh, you, you have the, the Romans, the, the, the authorities, the Jewish people, carrying out the things that God had planned and predestined to take place. Acts 23.11, and just for the context of God's sovereignty, we, we see that God stands beside Paul and comforts him the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul has not made it to Rome yet. That's where he's going. But God assures him, you will make it to Rome. You will go and testify also in Rome. We see in uh, Ephesians 1.11, perhaps an even more clear statement about God working all things according to the counsel of his will, that God is providence in all circumstances, that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working all things. He is sovereign over what is going on with Paul, and Paul is in God's hands and in God's plan. At the same time that we see how God is sovereign over all that is happening, we also see that people are exercising their free will and freely choosing what to do. This is important. The, the topic of this kind of mystery of God's providence, of his predestination and free will, is something that the youth uh, often raise questions about and bring up all the time. Uh, the natural question, whenever we read passages about God working all things according to the counsel of his will, and we talk about, you know, predestination and all these things, is how, the, how can it be so 
that both God is sovereign on the one hand and we have free will on the other hand? How, how can these two things uh, come together? How can they both be true? I don't have a whole lot of time to answer that question, but I hope in just a few short minutes I can uh, explain a little bit of how I understand Scripture saying that this works. Uh, so second, we see that God sovereignly orchestrates all things according to his will, uh, but also that human beings have uh, free will. Now, there are a few different ways that we can explain this mystery. Uh, there, there are a few different ways that, that Christians throughout all of church history have tried to explain this mystery, um, somewhat different views, in other words. Uh, what I'm going to be saying is essentially the view that is held by people like John Piper, Jonathan Edwards, Calvin, St. Augustine, and St. Paul, just to name a few. The last one of St. Paul was only half of a joke. Um, but if you look into this more, if this is something that interests you and you are a nerd and get excited about these things like me, uh, you can look up the concepts of agent causation and dual causality uh, in philosophy and this idea of the freedom of inclination. So I have a very important question to ask you as I try to explain this. Did you freely choose to put on your pants this morning? Or if you are wearing shorts, uh, or whatever article of clothing you chose to, uh, chose to wear this morning, did you freely choose to put that on this morning? Of course, <laughs> right? Uh, of course, right? We, we exercise our free will in all kinds of different things uh, throughout our daily lives. This is our experience, right? Uh, but think about all the things that led up to your choice to wear that particular pair of pants this morning. Think first maybe about the values that you would place, or maybe that you're wearing shorts because it's a really nice day outside, uh, and so you wanted to be comfortable or think about the values of wanting to conform to what is a society's normal standard of dress and of clothing to be accepted by others for dressing like a normal person rather than like a crazy person. Um, so maybe that's why we wear pants today instead of kelts, but you know, maybe in a certain culture a long time ago they wore kelts. Um, sometimes maybe we even make self-sacrifices for this purpose. For example, if I'm ever preaching in combined service, you will see me wearing a suit. Very rarely will you ever see me wearing a suit, but in order to uh, show love and to build credibility, I will wear a suit when preaching in combined service because of the cultural context that comes with that and some of the folks on the Chinese side. But anyway, you can think about all of the, the motives inside yourself. What about when you bought that pair of pants? And the motives of spending money versus saving money or going to that particular store and choosing to spend your money at that particular store rather than another. Think about all the things that happened outside of you, such as the fact that the materials that your clothing is made out of actually exist and that we discovered it some hundreds of years ago and whatever it's made out of or the plastics and the ability to produce plastics. Think about how the pants had to be made and shipped to a very specific store that you would shop at or to Amazon and that the workers would have to come to work on that day and that particular pair of pants would have to go into the uh, whatever you call it that you, you buy the things from on the racks, right? As I'm explaining these things, it's getting crazy, right? It's getting a little bit ridiculous. But if you think about every small choice that we make, there is this sort of infinite amount of choices and things that lead up to that point, that enable that to be the case. Now think about that 
concept for a minute and keep that in the back of your mind. And now think about how does God influence us? How does God influence us, right? We, we often pray for God to give us direction. God sometimes maybe audibly speaks to us and, and clearly directs us in some way. Sometimes that happens. But much more, the work of God and work of the Holy Spirit is much more subtler than that. That, that God is slowly giving us desires towards holiness and away from that which is not holy. We also see in Scripture, for example, in Romans chapter 1, that God reframes from his sustaining grace to give us up to our sinful desires as an act of judgment. So God influences our hearts and our motives in all these things that we choose and in the, small, the smallest little things. And so I hope that is a helpful illustration if you put those two together and think about all of the many, infinitely many choices that have to be, make, have to be made and have to have had happened even for you to just wear your pair of pants this morning, and then you extend that to the macro scale, I hope you can see how God's hand can be in the details, how God can be orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will, but then also that we can be exercising human freedom. I'm running out of time, so I just want to ask this last question of, so what? So why, why is this important? So the last thing I'll say is, is therefore, if this is true, therefore we can rest in God's good plan. Imagine yourself in Paul's shoes. Do you think that Paul would have been comforted by knowing that God is sovereign and working through all things? I think we can definitely say that he, in fact, was comforted. Again, going back to, to verse 11, we can see that God is very actively standing beside Paul and saying, take courage. God is comforting Paul in his affliction. We also see that Paul writes things like what he wrote in Philippians after this event as he's put into jail. Think about for a minute, maybe if you were one of Paul's closest friends who urged him, do not go to Jerusalem, but then he went anyway. We can rest in God's good plans. When times are easy, perhaps it is easy to look at that and say, Yes, we can rest in God's plans, but even in these things, when times are difficult, we can rest in God's good plan. Why do you think it is that we have a, such a hard time doing Sabbath as a church? And I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I have a hard time doing Sabbath. Well, why is it so hard for us to do Sabbath? I, I wonder if one of the underlying motives or reasons why it's hard for us to do Sabbath is because so many times we want to be in control of things. We want to be the ones that are doing things. And so we feel this constant pressure to always be doing, 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 and we can never step back and slow down. But if we embrace, if we in a more real way embrace with our hearts this truth that God has a plan, that he is sovereign and in control, it allows us to let go a little bit and find Sabbath in him in the midst of our busy and crazy lives. As Charles uh, Spurgeon said, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head, giving perfect rest. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head. 
All these things uh, come true as, as we see and read passages like the promise that we have in Romans 8.28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him. This isn't just some cliche that we say. It is an immensely important truth that we know that we are in the hands and in the plan of our sovereign heavenly father. Some people criticize this understanding of God's providence by saying it turns us into robots of something. Uh, but the reality is, is that if God is in the details in all of these small decisions in life, then all things work together for the counsel of his will, then everything we do has meaning. Everything we do has meaning because God is using even the smallest little decisions and the smallest things in our lives in order to accomplish his plan and purposes. We may not see it on this side of eternity, but even those little small things God is using for the purpose of his will. Everything, every tear, every painful moment, Every laugh, every decision, big and small, is a part of God's plan. And we can rest in our Heavenly Father, not because of some fatalistic throwing up our hands and saying it doesn't matter, but because we know our lives are held in His hands and our lives are held in His plan. It all has meaning and purpose, even if we don't see this purpose on this side of eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth that we can look at and we can see that your hand providentially preserved Paul's life in the midst of this great persecution. We thank you for the promise that we have in Romans 8.28 that you work all things for the good, for those who love you, that you work all things for your glory. We pray that as we reflect on that, that it could not only be maybe just some confusing head knowledge, but that it can be something that truly impacts our heart. So God, give us peace and assurance and confidence in you and in your sovereign plans as we look to you. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name.